Welcome to the Stuttgart Missional Community Church Sermon Podcast. SMCC is a multicultural church serving the English-speaking community in Stuttgart, Germany. For more information or to contact us, visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net. So before we start and get into the word, I want to ask how many of you were considered the teacher's pet, right? The teacher's favorite when you were in school. Raise your hand proud. Raise it up high. If you're the teacher's pet, Stacy, raise your hand. <laughs> All right. So several of you, right? I mean, it was a was it a good place to be? I was, I've never been there, okay? I was the kid in the corner with the dunce cap. Seriously. I mean, I was always separated from the rest of the kids because I was the jokester, always, you know, causing trouble. And, uh, yeah, I was never the teacher's pet. But was it good being the teacher's pet? No. No. Some of you are nodding yes, some no. I think it would be kind of good to be the teacher's pet. I saw the teacher's pet always getting the cushy jobs, you know, uh, come up and write on the board for me, or, you know, could you pick up everybody's tests? And sometimes the, the teacher's helper, which was definitely the teacher's pet, sat right next, had a desk right next to the teacher sometimes. So it's like they were mini teacher. And, and uh, I think it would be kind of cool, right, to always be called on when the teacher was sick of the rest of those idiots giving the wrong answer, right? She'd call on you or he'd call on you because you, they knew you could give the right answer, right? And I think it would be cool until I got to the playground, right, or until we were out of the class, because I remember the teacher's pet wasn't very popular, right? Because there was, they were obviously the favorite. They had all of the blessing of being the teacher's pet. And the rest of the kids kind of resented that. And today we're going to talk about favoritism. We're going to talk about envy. And we're going to talk about bitterness. And uh, that favoritism thing, that, it's not something we consider a lot, but the story of Joseph really brings it out. And I thought, okay, we're going to go through this a little bit at a time. Uh, now, but it's really important that you have your Bible today because I'm going off script. I have little snippets of chapter 37, but I want to read the whole chapter today. So even if the sermon stinks, you're going to get plenty of God's word. Okay. That's going to be, that's the good part. So we're going to go through the entire chapter together. And believe me, it's good. It's good stuff. All right. It's a great story. So we're going to be in chapter 37, verse one. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Joseph's a tattletale right? He's a tattletale. He's bringing a bad report. And Joseph brought the bad report. And so verse three, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Verse four, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they ha hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9, 
Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves on the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. Verse 12, now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to, the, he said to them, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if all is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. And so he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and the man a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And, and the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. And so J Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But then Reub when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father." So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let, us not, let our hand not be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. This is Judah's reasoning. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him as a slave. You know, after all, he is our brother. And his brothers listened to him. Then many night traders passed by, and they drew Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and, and I, where shall I go? Why is Reuben so distraught? He's the oldest brother. He's responsible for the welfare of Joseph. So he cannot return to his father with empty handed. He really feared this. Verse 31, they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped it in, the, in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is, is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol with my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. See, it's a good story. It's a good story. It's happy. Here's Joseph, a young man 
who is definitely the favorite. I mean, there's no bones made about it. He is the favorite. Now, I know that we have in this church great parents, parents who love their children, who do their absolute best to not show favoritism in their home. But here's the thing about favoritism. It comes naturally. It comes naturally, doesn't it? We gravitate towards the people that we have most in common with, even our own children, right? So if you were an athlete, dad, and your son's an athlete, you, you probably have more in common with the son, that son than you do with the son who maybe plays video games, right? And fathers, that relationship between father and son is, is a really strong one. You know, you've heard me talk about my father and how, you know, he, was, he had some serious problems. But even though he was an abuser, even though he was a, not a great guy, I still wanted his approval, you know? I still want him to be proud of me because that father-son thing, it's, it's really strong. And so to be the favorite of the father, that was a really powerful thing, especially among so many brothers. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to judge anyone. What I'm saying is we, because it comes naturally to play favorites, that means that we actually have to make an effort to not pick favorites. Okay, we have to actually make a favorite to, uh, you know, make an effort to make sure that we are not showing favoritism. This favoritism that's showing kind of undue favor to someone. Okay, picking them, and you know, there's a lot of things close to this nepotism, really close. That's playing. That's basically picking a favorite because they're related to you, right? But they don't really deserve the honor that they're giving. What had Joseph really done? Nothing. Nothing to become favorite. He, he, Jacob just cherished him because he was like the, one of the last ones born in his old age. That's it. That's it. He was just the favorite. I want to tell you, just because something comes natural, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I just trust my gut and everything, right? I just trust what comes naturally. Just because something's natural doesn't make it good, right? I believe arsenic is natural, right? doesn't make it good. Cocaine grows out of, the, out of the earth, right? The coca leaf doesn't make it good, right? Everything that's natural is not automatically good, right? Now, it may be the natural thing may be kind of morally neutral, but it doesn't make it good. And so trusting our gut is not always the way to go, right? Trusting our emotion, trusting our gut is not always the way to go. And we have to make a really conscious choice not to play favorites. We also have to do this not just in parenting, but in leadership, don't we, Right? Maybe you, you're a supervisor, and you're a Christian, and there's, you have Christians working for you, right? And you have non-Christians working for you. Maybe you have a tendency to show Christians that work for you favoritism, right? Maybe they're not up to par to their colleagues, but because they work with you, and you're a Christian, and they're a Christian, you have a tendency to show them a little favoritism. Or maybe you just enjoy doing the same things they do, right? Maybe you're both runners, and so you're, you're more apt to help them, right? In a supervisory position, we have to be worried about favoritism. In church leadership, you know, we have to be careful about favoritism, showing favor to those that we have uh, most in common with. And, and, you know, it's just, you think, well, you know, I don't really struggle with this. How did you choose your growth group? If you're in a growth group, what made you choose it? Was it the location, or was it the people in it, or was it the one you could be most faithful to? I'll tell you, most people, in my experience, picks, pick growth groups based on a group that has, with people, with child care is one thing for sure, 
but usually a group of people who have, they have most in common with, right? But the, that, the, while people pick groups based on that criteria, I want to tell you that I don't think that's what makes the best groups. I think what makes the best growth groups is a diverse group of people in different life stages going through different things together, right? That's kind of what makes the strongest groups because, you know, younger Christians need to hear from more mature Christians who have already raised their kids, right? And, and, and it's just, it's stronger. It's, we just are naturally, we have this natural tendency to gravitate towards people who are most like us. And this is a problem in the church because it leads to division and clickiness, as it were, in the church, right? We, when, we, we, we're, in many ways, we're still in high school. In many ways, as adults, we still act like we're in high school some, in some ways. And uh, this is one of the ways we do that. We just gravitate towards those people that are like us, and we don't think much or, or even think about at all the people who are not like us in church and outside the church. And this is, there's a lot of really firm warnings. First, here in Joseph. But Paul talks about it when he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy to not show favoritism in dealing with sin in the church. Basically, that church leaders who are sinning should be dealt with exactly the same as somebody in the church, right? And we see this destroying the Roman Catholic Church right now, don't we? We see it because we, there's sin in the church, but they're dealing with the leadership, the priests, differently than they would deal with the congregants. And this is a huge problem. Instead of exposing it and addressing it, they're hiding it. Right? And so this is a huge problem. It doesn't just happen in the Roman Catholic Church either, right? It happens in Protestant churches, but it should not happen. That's what Paul is writing to Timothy. This should not happen, regardless of their leadership status in the church. When there's sin in the house, it needs to be eradicated because sin in the church is like cancer. It spreads, it metastasizes, it moves to other people, and then pretty soon you've got a really, really sick church. As a matter of fact, Paul all through the New Testament, gives very clear direction on how to deal with sin in the church. And he basically says we are not to tolerate it in the church. And churches have gotten really bad at dealing with sin in the church because we've just, you know, we've decided to look the other way. But the protocol that the Bible says is if you are in sin, then it is your, your brother or your sister's duty to bring that to your attention in confidence Right? So if I'm your friend, I'm your pastor, I see that you have an area in your life that is clearly sinful according to the word of God. My responsibility is to come to you one-on-one and address that. Now that may make you uncomfortable, right? And you may, the reaction varies in this, right? Some people just fly off the handle and lose it. And some people are like, oh, okay, I didn't realize this. And they, they correct the behavior. If and, and reconciliation is always the goal. But if that person won't be restored, then you take the witness of other people, right? So maybe we'll get the advisory council and we'll come and talk to you about it. If then you still say, no, I can't, you know, I don't see a problem with this. I'm not going to change, blah, blah, blah. Then expulsion from the body is not expulsion from the kingdom of God, but expulsion from the body of Christ is the next step, okay? Meaning, not excommunicated, not really the right word. Because what we want to do is dismiss somebody from the the body until they deal with the situation and then they're always welcome to come back. Go through counseling, go through things and come back. That's the protocol that the Bible gives us. That we are to handle 
sin and take care of it, not show favoritism to other people. Because favoritism creates an environment where envy and bitterness can grow, really grow and take root. And when we get, when we let favoritism influence and create an environment for people to sin through envy and bitterness, we we invite a lot of problems. Uh, In Genesis here, in, in 18 through 22, we see the evil of envy. And envy is an awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined by a desire to p- possess that advantage. And what is an advantage? A lot of things, right? Possessions are an advantage. Envy comes from a lot of possessions. People who are more geared towards things envy possessions. Boats, cars, great houses, keeping up with the Joneses. We can be envious of what other people have, but we can also be envious of their talents, right? Of their abilities. I and I am, I'm envious of Jordan Spieth, right? If you don't know who he is, you don't play golf, right? But he's a great, young, fit golfer who's going to have many, many years of millions of dollars ahead of him, right? He's, and he's just, he really seems like a solid kid, right? Jordan Spieth. But his talents, his ability to shape the golf ball around a corner and onto the green within a couple of feet and then make that bird, that's awesome. That is awesome to me. And, you know, it's, do I envy his talent? Yeah, not to a sinful level, obviously. But, yeah, I mean, I wish I could play golf like that for sure, right? But sometimes in, in, in our work environments and church environments, we really do envy the talents that other people have. And because we can't compete, instead of... Instead of, you know, kind of pursuing and and improving ourselves, we do what we can to tear them down, right? And bring them back maybe down, even though their talents are obviously better than ours. How about favor? We can be envious of somebody's favor. Maybe you're not the teacher's pet, but you are jealous of your, you know, boss's eye or your mom or dad's eye. And uh, so the favor that's being shown to them, you're, you're jealous of that. You're envious of that. Even spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts can be a, a point of envy. You know, I would love to stand up here today and say pastors and missionaries are all totally above all this pettiness, but we're not. Once in a while, uh, a, a debate will arise among missionaries of, of who is really a missionary, right? Is, it a, um, is a missionary somebody who's going to a country, an unreached people? Is that what a true missionary is? Is a missionary someone who's working in the United States in the inner city? Is, is that really a missionary or whatever? And we're all trying to quantify our own position in the kingdom of God. And while they may not say it's envy in it, I think that's really what the root of it is, right? Because those who are called to South Su- to the Sudan, right, maybe are envious of me, right? Because I don't have to live in the Sudan. I'm called to be right here, and I'm equally a missionary with them, right, as far as status goes. And we have all the benefits of living here. We have friends who speak English. We have uh, access to the commissary, to the PEG, and all these things, you know, things that they don't have. And maybe there's some envy there. But the thing is, We're all missionaries, and each one of us, each one of us is only responsible for what God has called us to do and be. And each one of us has different gifts, and all of our gifts are important. I promise you, if someone comes to this church with a greater gift of preaching and teaching, and that's their calling, then man, 
they will have a voice here. I don't hog the pulpit because this is mine, my only, but this is my unique position in the church. This is what God has called me to. God has called you to other things. Some of you, God has also called to the gift of preaching. That's, I get it. But there's gift of helps, equally important. Gifts of service, equally important. Musicians, equally important. Everyone important, but we're all responsible to do the best we can with what God has given us and what he's called us to. And this spiritual jealousy is just silly. It's silly. If you were an usher today, Scott and Dennis and Doug, you are as important as any musician or what I'm doing right now. It's all equally important. Your kids, the kids workers, they're equally important in all of this. We're just doing what God has called us to do. And together, we make this happen, right? Together, none of us can do it on our own. Spiritual jealousy really divides the body of Christ, this idea of talents and abilities. And, and uh, because we might, not, we might not admit it, but if we're doing the ushering or we're doing the greeting or whatever, something that we think is less valuable, we put less effort into it than we, we ought to, right? And we don't think it's important, so we don't put a lot of importance on it. But I want to tell you, I highly value every single usher who ushers with excellence. Every single children's worker and preschool worker who gives it their all down there is making an eternal difference in the lives of those children. And I value them. I value them. I value volunteers, not as whole fillers, but as servants of God who are doing what God's called them to do and together working with, together, all of us working together, fulfilling what God has called us to do in the service he's provided, us, uh, provided for us to offer here. We can also be envious, lastly, of blessings, of people's blessings. They got promoted, we did, I didn't, right? Um, they, they had a financial windfall, I didn't. We can be jealous of people's blessings. The Bible tells us very clearly, though, to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Are you mature enough to share in someone else's blessing? Right? Are you mature enough to rejoice with them in their blessing? Or do you kind of sneer like, I should have got that. That should have been me. Envy is really sneaky. In Galatians, Paul warns, I'm just going to turn there real quick. I know it's not on the screen, but in Galatians 5.25, he says this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Envy separates us from one another and it separates us from God. Envy sows division. We should really work hard at surrendering our envy and our bitterness to the Lord. Now, the thing about Joseph is he was kind of an idiot. In the fact that he was a young man who was obviously a favorite, and he was having these dreams. And these dreams were of, from God, right? Because in, a, in future chapters, we're going to see that exactly what Joseph dreamed happened, right? Spoiler alert for the next few weeks. This happened. So the dreams were from God. But here's the thing. I want to talk about revelation for a second. Because maybe God has spoke to you in a dream, and I'm going to give you some advice from, in, from Joseph's experience here. Dreams are what is called special revelation, okay? Now, we have different kinds of revelation in the Bible. We have general revelation, which is being able to see God in nature. If you've ever been to the Alps, 
You've seen God in nature, right? The majestic mountains rising up, I mean, literally from nowhere, and just you just see it. The beauty of God's creation is natural revelation. We see God at work in all creation. Then there's biblical revelation, where God has revealed himself and wrote himself in, in writing into human history. Why? So we wouldn't mess it up. He has revealed himself through biblical revelation. And then we have special revelation, which is dreams, visions, when God speaks to us in prayer. Special revelation. Now, the, the, uh, Jesus, the, church, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, they would add continuous revelation, okay, which we re- wholeheartedly reject. That is, God is continually revealing more of himself, like through biblical uh, like biblical revelation, he's revealing more of himself in writing to the church today. Okay, we reject continuous uh, revelation, but special revelation—that's what Joseph's experiencing here. This this dreaming, visions, or word of knowledge. Okay, also this is special revelation. Special or personal revelation. And let's just call it that for a second. Is exactly that. It's for you. It's for you. You know, I've, I, we've come across many Muslims who have given their heart to the Lord after having a dream about Jesus. They've, they've had a dream about Jesus because Muslims believe in this, that God reveals himself in dreams, so God comes to them in a way they'll receive. They have a dream about Jesus. He, he tells them, I'm, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Put your faith in me. And that Muslim gets up the next morning and gives his heart to Jesus, right? We've, we've come across several of these guys, and, and uh, our missionaries to Afghanistan and stuff have also testified of this, this special revelation. But here's Joseph. He's got this dream, and instead of keeping it to himself, he shares it with his brothers, totally not even thinking about their feelings. And I want to tell you, church, if you have a dream, I, we believe God speaks to people through dreams. We believe that God can answer in prayer. In your times of quietness before the Lord and you're praying and seeking God, can God give you an affirmation and give you direction? Absolutely, right? And I know it because I've experienced it. Some of you have as well. Some of you come from a discipline of Christianity that doesn't acknowledge this. And I mean, it's wrong. I don't know how else to put it. It's wrong. God is alive Jesus is alive. The Holy Spirit has been sent to be with us, to give us this special revelation. And every single Christian at some point, maybe not every single day, but should be experiencing revelation from God, direction from God. Every Christian, because God is alive and he is active in our lives. And if if that hurts your feelings or messes with your theology, I'm sorry. But I just do not see any other interpretation in Scripture where God is absent from his people. He says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And if the spirit is poured out upon all flesh and the spirit is God, then shouldn't we be able to hear from God? Yes. Yes. But when God speaks, it's always for you first. It's always for you first. When God speaks to me to to come and preach, he's first convicting me of this. He's speaking to me first. When you have a devotion, when you hear preaching, you are not to be elbowing your wife. Dink, dink, that's for you, you know. Uh, he's talking about you. He must be reading your mail, right? Just that, it's always for you. And when we read devotions and when we get into God's word, we can think, oh, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so. I want to tell you, I want you to get away from that. God's word is for you. 
That conviction is for you. When you have a dream or a word of knowledge, you need to, be, you need to proceed carefully with that. When you go to someone and you say, I have a dream, and it affects you, that person that you're speaking to, number one, is right to be skeptical, right? Especially if God had not already speak to them. Usually when somebody comes to me with a word of knowledge, they have a word from the Lord for me. It's confirming something God's already spoken to me most of the time, okay? And, and we, I don't care what somebody prefaces. God told me to tell you this. You measure it by scripture, period, all right? Your witness of your heart in scripture is what you measure it by, because everybody who says, well, God told me to tell you this, that doesn't mean anything, right? You measure it by scripture, and then you receive it or not. And uh, just a couple of lessons from, from Joseph here that are just a little bit off topic as far as what we are addressing today, bitterness, envy, and uh, fa- favoritism. But this idea of dream, I think you should be expecting to experience God. I think it's one thing to go through the Bible together and encourage biblical literacy. I think that's super important, but we should not separate knowledge of the holy from experiencing the holy, okay? That those two are not mutually exclusive, but both bring an, a really great, wonderful balance that Scripture intends into our lives. We should know the Word, but we should also practice the word, not just the do's and don'ts of scripture, but the personal intimate relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ that the Bible promises us. Amen. That is a really good place to say amen. I mean, I just, I just can't imagine just a a Christianity without a close personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I just can't. And, um, when I first became a Christian, I was part of a denomination that was very distant from the personal relationship part. And I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it anymore. So once we give in to envy and envy starts taking our lives, we see what happens in Joseph's brothers and bitterness starts to take root in their life. And it starts to, it leads just the bite of bitterness Bitterness steals our joy as we focus on what others have and what we don't have. And we refuse to enjoy what God has given us because we're ungrateful and we're unthankful. Because we're jealous and we're envious of what somebody else has. Can I just be totally transparent with you and tell you I have a huge problem with this. There could be a hundred people in church on a Sunday, but I am going to be thinking about the six who missed that week. I don't know why. I could say, or the sermon, everything can go awesome, the whole service, but the one mistake, the one thing, I'm focused on that. And I hate that about myself. But I have to, be, I have to consciously push against that. And I have to consciously be thankful for what God has. So for some of you, this just comes natural. <laughs> and you drive me crazy. <laughs> I'm just being, again, I'm being honest and being transparent here, right? Because some of us have to work at that. For some of you, it's awesome. It's awesome. You're really good at it. Jordan is like that, right? He is really always seeing the good in everything, and it comes natural to him. But for some of us, we have to work at that. We have to work at that. And, and uh, it can steal our joy. And I want to tell you that bitterness and this idea, it only robs us. And I'm pointing at myself because there are times when I look at people like Jordan and other people like him, 
you know, who could just, just, just enjoy what they have regardless of what other people. I think I, I'm, a, I'm a little jealous of that, <laughs> that, you know. I mean, that's, that's awesome. They don't have to work at that. Now, Jordan will be the first to tell you there's other things he has to work on, right? There are things that, and, and it's just different people, but it doesn't come natural to all, everyone in this idea. But I'm telling you, for those of us who have to really hunt for that, it, it's a, it can feel like a disability sometimes. Like, we just wish we could just enjoy what God has given us without focusing on the bad things. And when we let envy take root and bitterness sets in, it leads to anger, it leads to cynicism. Uh, this is how it most manifests itself in me, in cynicism, in jealousy, and in strife. But I'd say cynicism, for me anyway, is, is, is the strongest. For you, it could be different, but I think we tend to overlook these things, envy and bitterness and favoritism, because it's just so common and natural in our culture. And we, because we ignore it, we don't think we have to eradicate it. I want to tell you, you know, that there was that, I don't know what it was when I was a kid, but it was like knowing is half the battle. Wasn't it like after every G.I. Joe cartoon, there was like this saying, knowing is half the battle. Knowing that envy, favoritism, and bitterness is a sin is half the battle because then we can start eradicating it out of our lives because we're conscious of it. The thing about bitterness is it's a sin and envy. It's a sin for, that's hard for others to see. And it can even be hard for us to see, but that's why we have to, in prayer, invite the Holy Spirit to reveal to us our sin. A prayer that should be a constant of every Christian's life is, Lord, examine my heart. Lord, Holy Spirit, take inventory of my life. Show me my sin. Show me what is in my heart that is eating my lunch. You know, what is it that's not allowing me to have joy and peace in my life and help me to get rid of it, to just vacate it out of my heart. While favoritism may create an environment for envy and bitterness, we are still responsible for our own sin. We're still responsible for it. There is a, we live in an environment that invites us to sin constantly, right? If you want maybe not in here, I hope, but when we walk out the doors, there'll be plenty of opportunities to sin. And while our environment may create the environment, you know, a, 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 an atmosphere that's easy to sin, we're still responsible for how we conduct ourselves. And we must be on guard as parents, as leaders, in showing favoritism. We must be careful not to hide our sin. You know, we're very judgmental of people who can't hide sin, that teenage girl who gets pregnant, Right? The person who can't seem to quit smoking or the person who way, eats way too much. Their sin, they wear it. You can see it. But this hidden sin, this is the one that we foster in our hearts. And before we're quick to judge someone else, sin we can see, let the Holy Spirit examine our hearts and convict us of the sin that no one else can see. Amen? Thank you for listening to the SMCC Sermon Podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net.